0: So, just to let you know, if you tried to shake my hand this morning and I, like, did the awkward left-hand thing, apparently, I know I'm always doing things, apparently I cracked a, a bone in my hand right here. I didn't know, I did three and a half weeks ago, I was taking all these lawn chairs home, and they were in the back of the truck, and the wind, well, actually blew one of them out, I didn't know until I got home when it. There's not eight here, so I had to go back and find it. Uh, but they, so I had to stop at a stoplight, and and I put the you know I put the truck in park, and I ran to the back, and I and I dumped them over. When I dumped them over, they landed on my hand. I'm like ah, so I get in, and so like three and a half weeks later, it still hurts. So my wife says, "Why don't you go to the doctor?" Novel idea. So I go to the doctor, and he goes and he checks it. Out. He goes, "Yeah, it's not a ligament." He goes, "You probably cracked this." He goes, "It happens all the time, people cracking their bones." And he goes, "It's not severed or anything like that." He goes, "It would be all purple and stuff," but he said you kind of cracked it, so I got to be careful, because I thought I was doing really good, and this morning, there's this really big burly guy in first service, and I'm all like, hey, you don't need all, and I'm like, I am built like a junior high girl, okay, so, but since then, it my hand has been throbbing like crazy, so, yeah, I will not tell you guys anything anymore, Ugh. So anyway, if I do the awkward handshake, that's why but there you go. Uh, two things. First off, go bags. If you guys grabbed a go bag and you brought it back, first off, thank you so much. In previous years, if you don't know what go bags are, uh, go bags are bags that we put together for kids who end up in child welfare services. These are the first night when they're taken out of a home. They don't have anything. No no pajamas, no underwear, no toothbrush. They're just taken out. And so we wanted to make sure that one, they had, they had bags that they could put stuff in, but also they had some basic things of life. So they weren't so put out when they got taken out of their. Home, so we started this thing working with child welfare services called go bags and uh, so this year we put all these things so you guys could actually bring stuff and put them in go bags and earn these big plastic bags and they take them and keep them on a shelf out there when they have to go and do that and so you guys uh this year i think you brought in a little more than 70, 70 bags before you just bring like little things and so we have to put them all together ourselves so this time it's it was more expensive for you but easier for us so uh, that's great. So over 70 bags, that's, I mean, that actually takes them through about half the year of stuff that they need when, when we do this. So we'll be doing this again later, but thank you so much. If you did take one home, forgot to bring it back, you can bring it back anytime. I saw someone bringing one in this morning, so if you forgot, you can still do that. But again, thank you so much for helping out with the go bags. And secondly, just to uh, jump on the back of what Christy was saying, come to baptisms today. Okay, uh, even if you have something to do in the afternoon, one of my friends has something to do this afternoon, but he's going to come and just hang out for the baptisms and then take off because we want to celebrate as a family coming together uh, what's, what's taking place, something God's doing in people's lives. So please, please uh, come to baptisms today. If you do decide to stay, there will be food. <clears throat> Don't feed my dog. I'm going to leave it at that. So, uh, welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables around the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes and questions that go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events, and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes versus questions, announcements, all that goes along with today's message. And also on the communion tables, there are maps. To baptisms, too. Okay, so don't forget that so you don't get lost. I don't think it's that hard to find, but some people get lost. Way to go, man. It just Seriously, you just take it in front of the whole crowd, too. Just boom. Way to go. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. I will not call you out, except apparently. Why don't you stay on the arena of God's Word? We'll get started. This is Acts uh, chapter 4, verse 12. Was that even for you or for somebody else, huh? Oh, what a trooper. All right. Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Uh, Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you and walk in the goodness and the grace that you have provided, that we would understand that that we are all in our lives and in the same place, in need of redemption, in need of a Savior. And you come and bring hope and grace and restoration again. So teach us as a people uh, to not just believe in that, but live in it every day of our lives. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this series called What in the World Part 2. It's called Part 2 because I did Part 1 at the end of last year, where I had some things in the Scriptures. When I read them, I was all, huh. And then I thought if I was like, huh, you might be, huh? So I answered some of those questions for you. Uh, We're doing part two to answer some of the questions that you gave us that I asked for during part one. Those we don't get to on a Sunday morning, we're doing on our blog, on our website. It's on the internet. You guys know what that is, okay? Because <laughs> sometimes you guys ask me questions, and I'm like, I just answered that in the blog. Like, So, so la- after last week's message out of Genesis 15, people asked me five questions. And the questions were, if you were here, this will make sense. If you weren't, I'm really sorry for taking time up with something you don't care about. Uh, the first one was, uh, why did Abraham only bring something to the sacrifice? The second one was... Uh, why? Th- they, why were they three years old? The third one was: Which way did they cut them for a sacrifice? Was it across or long ways? I'm thinking long ways would be. Oh my goodness! It'd be take off forever. The fourth one was: Why? Um, why, two, why didn't they cut the birds? And the last one was. Why a young pigeon? And so I answered all those in the blog this week. So if you had a question like that, it's online. Just go look at it. We answered it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm really sorry. So uh, during part one, again, I asked for questions for you guys to come and ask that we come back this year and answer. And I said, make them about Bible verses so we actually have somewhere to start. But most of you didn't listen because you're like that. And so you ask questions like today's. This is today's question, okay? It was this, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And seriously, I almost went on vacation and had somebody else do it. Because it's like, this is like a minefield. No matter where I go with this, someone's going to be mad at me. So, yeah. Yeah, go me. I'm, I'm, I'm here for the, for the pummeling and the beaten. So, uh, actually, when we, when we did this, we were even, we even going to put this as the sermon note cover. Was this right here? Wait. Oh. But we thought someone might be offended by it. You know, because everybody is offended by everything nowadays, so we didn't. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, as I talk about this, some of you are going to think I'm too hard on it. Some of you are going to think I'm too soft on it. Uh, but, but what we want to do in the end is come down to see what God really says about this, so we're kind of talk about it. As I get, no, no matter what I do, I mean, I'm just going to get it from somebody. So we're just going to go with it. So I uh, kind of figure the best way to handle this is if I can just offend everybody. It'll, it'll be even better. Um, Equal opportunity, so no matter who ends up in charge one day, I can be in trouble no matter which side I follow. That should make it all better. Uh, Even in think about how to start uh, today's message, the verse that I had you stand for, I know someone's probably going to read more into that than simply Jesus' call to trust Him in our lives. So I read a few books, and and there's a guy named Kevin DeYoung. He wrote this book, and I'm going to use it very liberally this morning in what I talk about. But I want to kind of step back and I want to take a large picture look at the Bible because some people, when you talk about this subject, they're very quick to quote verses like Leviticus 18 about men lying with men. And they tend to ignore all the other verses that are around that, that tell us not to lie, that tell us not to slander people. And all of you had said horrible things about presidential candidates, no matter what side you're on. It tells us not to bear grudges. It tells us not to turn your daughters into prostitutes. And I've seen some of the things that some people let their daughters wear. It okay. uh, talks about uh, honoring the elderly, it talks about loving foreigners, and some of the things that have been said during this refugee crisis has just been horrible. So like I said, I'm going to do my best to try and offend everybody right at the outset right here. Uh, we tend to want to pick and choose things out of the out of the Bible or out of our own feelings of what's worse than another thing, and yet God calls us all to something deeper. Something deeper than judging each other and labeling one another. So how about this? Let's start by agreeing, uh, all of us, that the Bible says something about homosexuality. Can we start there? Okay, all right, all right. But can we all agree that the Bible is not a book about homosexuality? And what I mean by that is if you pick up the scriptures and you read them front to back and all you walk away with is an opinion about the rightness or wrongness of homosexuality, you have missed the entire point of the Bible and you probably have bigger issues. I think the question about what the Bible says about it is a good one, but the bigger question is what does the Bible say about everything, about everything? Who are the scriptures about? And that means you can't start in Genesis 19 or Romans 1 or Leviticus 18. You have to start back where the Bible starts, and that's in Genesis chapter 1. You know where the first person you meet in the Bible is? God! There you go. God. Big E on the eye chart. Hard to miss. God. First person it talks about. And the first thing that you see is that God made all things, including us. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. God is the only one who is truly self-existent and truly independent. We are not independent or self-existent no matter how much we say we want to be. And when you've got to tell other people how independent you are, it kind of defeats the point of being independent okay so god is without equal in his essence he's unlike anything that ever is is or will be and that is who made us and this god is what we call holy 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 speaks to god being different than everything else but it's different for a purpose holy essentially means in a nutshell different but different for a purpose. God is holy, he is good, he is unlike us, but God is also personal. And he comes and he reveals himself to us so we can know who he is. This God creates all things, including men and women, as the crown of his creation. He makes us in his image and likeness, and he also calls us to be holy. This man and woman were meant to have dominion over and stewardship over God's creation. They were meant to reproduce a culture that honored God. But mankind thought he knew better than God how to live their life just like we still do today and what he does is he disobeys god's call he rebels and rebels against god's goodness when mankind did this we call this the fall he had broken a relationship with god he had run away from who god is but it's much more than a fall it was also a curse you ever walk around in the world and you're like man something's just not right with this That feeling became just how things are because of the fall and the curse. The perfect peace of God was broken because humanity sinned. But the central movement of the scriptures after this moment is how God would come to rescue us from our own defeat. How he would come to restore us. God comes and continues to make these claims that he would again dwell in the midst of his people. So God eventually comes to this family. There's a guy named Abraham, and he makes Abraham some promises. One of them is a land. The land is an area that's roughly about the size of the Garden of Eden. He says, You're going to have a son, and that son will lead to a son, to a son, to a son, that eventually leads to God's son, Jesus. He makes all of these promises that he would be with Abraham, that he that people who believe in him and were descended from Abraham would be his people. And eventually a whole nation arises that we call the Israelites. Eventually the Israelites end up in egypt in slavery to a taskmaster called pharaoh and they cry out in their slavery and god hears their cry and comes to rescue them all throughout the rest of the scriptures the idea of redemption and salvation always goes back to this idea that we are in bondage to sin it's like pharaoh our great taskmaster and we cry out and god comes to rescue and save us that's the story of redemption I'm greatly abbreviating all this, but the Israelites keep thinking they know better than God how to do things, and they keep screwing things up just like we do. Uh, eventually what happens is God sets his people free. They end up in the desert and God teaches them, build me a tabernacle, a temple, a place to worship. And God comes and meets with them in that tabernacle, in that tent. He will dwell with them just like the original creation. Eventually Israel gets a country and they build a temple and and God comes and meets with them there. But that gets destroyed because for as many times as God came to dwell with his people, they found ways to squander that restoration. And eventually, you read in Galatians 4, 4, and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. So what happens is Jesus comes, and He restores us to God again. Jesus dies like we should die. His righteousness is given to us. We exchange all that we are for all that he is, and we again get to enter into relationship with God. By submitting to, believing in, trusting, following, we have cleansing, redemption, hope, relationship with God, we have eternal life. And it's important to understand that in all the things that they went through, from the garden to Israel's land to the temple, even Jesus, it does not ever represent a day that holiness no longer matters to God. Okay? It does not represent a day that doesn't matter. It all points to the only hope we have ever had, the portrait of God with us. The book of Revelation says that those who overcome are those who have the right to enter the kingdom of God. Well, none of us have overcome. None of us have done that. And so what it points to is that Jesus is the one who has overcome and giving his worthiness to us and becomes our redeemer. There is a promised day of restoration of all things where God brings true peace in our lives that will be forever and ever. And that day is the movement of the scriptures. And this is what the Bible talks about. And this is the story of the scriptures. And that's where it goes. So in one sense, there isn't a whole lot the Bible actually says about homosexuality because the Bible is not a book about God trying to make a lecture on same-sex marriage or try a case in front of the Supreme Court. I know that in our day, homosexuality is one of the most pressing and painful controversies of our day, but that isn't what the church was meant to be preaching for the last 2,000 years. Since the dawn of the church, it is meant to speak about redemption and hope and grace and restoration. The church, from the moment it came into being, is to speak about Jesus forgiving and this Christ who saves and the Savior who cleanses us, but also a God who challenges us and changes us. Jesus convicts us. He converts us into his people. And only... Only in that sense can that question of homosexuality be considered. Is homosexuality something that must be repented of or forgiven, or can it be something else? Because everything should ultimately come down to honoring God and how he made us and how we live out this life, trusting him for the truth that he has provided. Okay? That's like my intro. Long, right? So, uh, let me also tell you where I'm coming from. Because you've been around Element any length of time. You know, theologically, I'm a pretty theologically conservative guy. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I'm a Christian. Well, that's a good thing, because I'm a pastor at a church, so I guess that should be good. Um, but I believe that God made us a certain way, and that we've a bent towards sin in our lives that causes many people, including myself, to not seek God's best for my life, to always want to put myself in the place of God in my own heart. Now, when I look at the scriptures, I believe that God instituted marriage as a covenantal gift that represents his relationship with humanity. And the way that is best represented is between a man and a woman as it represents Christ and his bride, the church. And if you're not a believer in Jesus today, all that I ask you to consider is that God longs for a relationship with you. That's what I want you to think about. He wants to restore you to who you're meant to be. And we all have things in our lives that we struggle with, and one isn't worse than another. And Jesus died to pay for all of them. And so when I answer this question of homosexuality and the Bible, it's really more for Christians. And what I mean by that is you're a person who believes that the Bible is God's word to us. It is inspired and it's authoritative. And whatever I say is not meant to be ammunition for anybody to be a jerk to anybody else. I am not going to talk about biology or sociology or history or politics. What I want to do is deal with the question what does the Bible say about homosexuality in the terms of sexual between one person and another? People of the same gender experiencing sexual intimacy, not intimacy. I think our culture today is hypersexualized and it's almost impossible for two people to have a relationship with one another that is that is intimate in a way that doesn't try to express it sexually and that's a bad thing. We are meant to have deep intimate relationships with one another that do not have to be acted out sexually. And so I'm going to take a very brief biblical case, because I don't want to belabor the point for you today, but simply do what Jesus did and go back to the book of Genesis. That's what we're going to spend some time at. Whenever people ask a question to Jesus about marriage or divorce or sexuality, he points them back to creation. Not to all the things in the law, he goes back to creation. That's what I want to do as well. But before we get there, I want to tell you that in the scriptures, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Over 30,000 verses, and only a dozen or so will deal directly with homosexuality. Now, that does not mean that traditional view of marriage is based on nothing more than a few fragments it means that there is a way that in this culture with these hebrew people that for millennia they never felt the need to create a case for marriage because for them it was always meant to be between a man and a woman in that jewish and then later christian circles that's simply how it was and if you know me guys you know i'm honest i can be blunt sometimes too blunt i get it i know but in the end I want you to truly see my heart in this that God longs for a relationship with all of us I want everybody to come to Jesus so I'll give you five things before I get to my biblical case okay, the first one is this the controversy that we have today was not dreamed up by evangelical Christians okay? it's, not a, it's not like Christians have this agenda the blogs and books written by traditionalists today are only entering the conversation that was started by others I actually think that's a bad thing we should have been talking about this because the dialogue is a good thing I think it can be great if we approach It was something that is truly tolerance. Okay, tolerance was not dreamed up as a way to make everybody approve of you doing whatever you want to do. Tolerance was meant that we could actually differ on our opinion and we could still be friends. We tolerate each other having a differing view. I have four friends who are gay. One of them is an atheist, and we get along really well. And it started because of an honest conversation. I was I was sitting there one day, and he goes, "You're a Christian." I said, "Yeah." He goes, "So do you think God hates fags?" And I'm like, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> nice to meet you. My name is Aaron. Um, you know. <laughs> and I go, I go, no. I said, I actually think Jesus loves you. And I said, and I don't think there's any different in my struggles and your struggles and our. And so we started this great conversation. I got to ask him the craziest questions, and he was never offended by it. Because we cared for one another. I mean, so, I mean, he's an atheist. I was telling somebody this last service because they asked about it. And, and so he's an atheist. And I said, so you believe in evolution? He, go, he goes, yeah. And so I, I said, so if you believe in evolution, then why are there any homosexuals at all? He goes, what do you mean? I said, survival of the fittest, right? So it had been bred out of the species. No, hold on. That's because we were friends. I didn't just say that. And so then what I said was, so my best thing is you need to believe in God because then you can say why well, I was made this way. Well then we can have that conversation talk about Jesus. Woo! <laughs> but we were friends. We were friends, and that's why we can have those kind of conversations, and he can be like, you're a dummy, and, and we're cool with it. I have I have three other friends who, who claim the name of Jesus, okay? One of them agrees with me, and actually, I ran this message by him before I ever gave it to you, and his response was this. He said, you know what's going to happen? He goes, you're going to have people on far ends of both of this. He goes, you're going to have people who are like, oh, God hates us, and you have people over here, it's like, oh, no, everything you want to do, it's all okay. He goes, you're really just going to be able to speak to the people in the middle. He goes, because those two people on the far sides are never going to to listen to you anyway he goes so what you prepare is going to be the people in the middle who are who are open to having the dialogue and the conversation my other two friends who disagree with me they don't live in town but when they do they actually come to element because they know I care about them and they care about me and, and we're friends because we have this thing that's truly called tolerance. Okay? Secondly, the reason the Bible says so little about homosexuality is that it was really an uncommon activity in the Jewish and Christian circles. Uh, there were other things outside their circles right, that, that were as big but not there. What the Bible says a lot about is like idolatry and hypocrisy and economic injustice and pagan worship because that was the things for God's people. They were always messing up with those things. But the prophets didn't say a lot about homosexuality because it wasn't a common practice for those people thirdly the bible is not silent when it does talk about because it does talk about homosexuality moses talks about it paul talks about it. it's the backdrop for sodom and gomorrah and its destruction the biblical texts that talk about sexual activity and marriage all point to one man one woman one lifetime as the model that god institutes Fourthly, there is nothing ambiguous when the Bible does talk about homosexuality. Uh, Even the homosexual Dutch scholar, uh, Pim Pronk, after saying that a lot of people, including Christians, want to see homosexuality supported in the Bible, he says in this case, that support is lacking. Okay? And fifthly, some people insist that Jesus never said anything about it, and that's actually not accurate. Jesus affirms the creation account, which we'll look at in just a moment, and he condemns this sin called pornea, and that's the broad word including every kind of sexual sin. Jesus never gave a long sermon on homosexuality because his listeners knew what the Torah taught, and Jesus affirms the Torah. Now, let me also be clear, because again, this is very touchy. Okay? It's a very touchy subject. And the main point when Jesus preached the gospel, or re-preached the gospel, is not what we do. It is what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus came to do. That's the point. Mark 9, 12, or Matthew 9.12, Mark 2.17, Luke 5.31, Jesus says, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Who are the sick? Us. All of us. We are all the sick. It's not just those other people who disagree with us. We are all the sick. And so often we want to lift up one thing above everything else and say, This is the worst thing a human being can do. But the worst thing we could do is reject the love and the grace of God. That's the worst thing we could do. So God doesn't hate people who struggle with anything in their lives, because if he did, he'd hate all of us, and we'd all just be lost. Our sin is not meant to be the end of us. It's not meant to be the end of us. It's the beginning when we realize that we need the great physician. So I'm going to quickly give you a biblical view, because that was the question, what does the Bible say? And we're going to start again, like I said, in the book of Genesis, where we started with God. In Genesis, you see that God lays out a world where a normative sexual relationship is between a man and a woman. The name for the man in Genesis is, is ish the name for the woman is this word ishah and it's, they're meant to actually go together. You look at the verses in Genesis chapter one through three, and what you see is a natural complement between a man and a woman coming together that brings these sexes together. Genesis one twenty-eight: God says, "Be fruitful and multiply." And the text goes on to show that a family was meant to come out of this union. The picture is meant to be a covenant relationship, promised on oath, called marriage, and sealed by a union capable of perpetuating a family that would bring about a godly culture because. We're image bearers of God. And this is the reason why the church has universally taught for the last 1950 years that the narrative in the Genesis account is one man, one woman, one lifetime. And if there was a different arrangement in the scriptures, it would require a different creation account that takes into account gender complementarity and procreation. Genesis 2.18 says, And the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so, again, a straightforward reading of Genesis without a cultural bias shows a divine design for this intimacy was one man, one woman becoming one flesh. Now, sometimes people today have questioned that and said, oh, this companionship, you needed a helper and all that. They say, well, you know, she was more a companion than a complement. Well, when you read the account, you have to understand that it was much more than that. Because some people say, well, why can't that be two men or, or two women that you see in that? Well, there's five reasons from the text that that actually can't happen, okay? Number one is this. This is what's called a divinely inspired complement. Genesis shows the expression of relationship in a man and a woman's equality and their complementarity. It's like, what does that mean? Well, what you look in the Genesis account is you see God comes and he takes something from the man. Genesis 2.21, this is called a rib, and he makes a, a, a helper suitable for him. What makes a woman unique is that she's both like the man and she is differentiated from the man. The text is trying to show you sameness and difference. Adam delights that Eve is not like the animals or like another dude. She is exactly what he needs. A new creation that is something different than he is. They will become one flesh because they were made from one flesh. And that is central to the covenant union and what it means to have this in the scriptures. Secondly, one flesh presupposes two persons of the opposite sex. Genesis 2.24. There a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now that one flesh points to sexual intimacy, which comes about in the next verse in nakedness in Genesis 2.25, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. <laughs> sexual intercourse is meant to bring a man and a woman together in this one flesh this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians not to have sex with a prostitute because you're becoming one flesh two men or two women cannot become one flesh like a man and a woman can become one flesh holding your holding hands or sticking your finger in someone's ear doesn't make you one flesh it doesn't it doesn't fulfill a biological function I mean it goes together in the scriptures what you read here one man one woman woman from man one flesh differentiated being sexual union which is also a reunion union as they come back together Uh, thirdly only two persons of the opposite sex can fulfill the procreative purpose of marriage again in the biblical text this is what it says it's not good for the man to be alone because alone the man could not become a creator like God was a creator and God called man to be every living thing was to produce after its own kind God created men and women to be fruitful and so what we're meant to see from the Genesis account is that offspring that come from a married union is supposed to be something that normally happens now yes it's true there are some couples who can't have children. My wife and I couldn't have children. We tried for years and years and years and we couldn't have kids. But that does not change the procreative purpose of marriage as found in Genesis. As blunt as I can be, homosexual unions cannot bear children in a normative way. It's not whether procreation is required for marriage to be valid. It's whether marriage by nature and the design in the book of Genesis. What is it? It's a covenant relationship whose one flesh is the type that can or could produce offspring. Malachi 2.10 says, "Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. In effect, this says, Be on guard for anything that would pull you out of this union. When you become one flesh, it's a covenant union. Don't profane a holy union. Now, it is also wrong to say, I think, that procreation is the sole purpose of marriage because, as we've talked about this numerous times, God made sex for pleasure, oneness, comfort, protection, and children. But it would also be wrong to properly define marriage without any reference to offspring that could come from the union. Fourthly, Jesus reinforces the normality of that Genesis account. Okay? He does that. Many people, again, think that Jesus didn't speak anything into this at all. But when asked about divorce, in the debate, Jesus responds with Genesis 2.24. He does this in Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10. Therefore, man will leave his father and mother, unite to his wife. They'll become one flesh. It's in this debate about divorce that Jesus answers these questions and reminds his audience that he made people male and female. The answer to the divorce question centers around a proper understanding of marriage and sexual union. He points back to the God-ordained lifelong union of a man and a woman because it is this reunion of them coming back together. And honestly, when you read the Genesis account, this is the only way it makes sense because marriage is more than a bond of friendship. It's a way to reflect God's covenant with his people. Which is, number five, the redemptive significance of marriage as a divine symbol in the Bible only works if the marital couple is a complementary pair. What I mean by that is if you read through the Genesis account, you will see that there's all these couplets that come out of the narrative. Okay? God made the heavens, and the heavens and the earth, the sun and the moon, the morning and the evening, the day and the night, the sea and dry land, the plants and the animals. And at the culmination of all this, God makes man and woman. In each pairing, each part belongs with the other. Neither is interchangeable. Heaven and earth were created to both go together. So were man and woman. You go to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. What you see is heaven and earth coming together again. This is preceded by Revelation 19, which we call the wedding supper of the Lamb, which is Jesus and his bride coming together. De Young wrote this in his book. He said, Marriage was created as a picture of the fittiness of heaven and earth, or as Ephesians 5 puts it, of Christ and the church. What does the Bible say about it? Well, if you go back to the beginning where Jesus went, that's what it says. But having said all of those things, guys, let me encourage you in a few things, depending on if you disagree with me, that this is the beauty of the church. This is the beauty of the church. We get to walk together and talk with one another in God's grace and truth. We can dialogue, we can question each other, and we can love one another through it all. This message, I know you get to the end and it's a little heavier on theology and Christian ethic and stuff like that, but that's because of what the question was. What does the Bible say about this? But what I want to close out with you today is that if you are struggling with anything, not just this, but but with anything, if you're unsure... If you are overwhelmed, if you feel a stigma or shame or guilt in your life, I actually ask the leaders of our redemption ministry to be available for you guys today after every service. And that's not just, oh, if I struggle with this, but maybe you're mad at something I said today. And you want to debrief and talk to somebody. They're going to be in the back. They've got little lanyards on that, that say prayer. They're not going to hang out in the hallway like normal. Okay? You can just grab one and pull somebody aside and talk to them. And that's not meant for me to like, wind you up and go sick you on somebody else. <laughs> okay? But it's there because we believe that God is always here for us. And so what we want to do is also be here for you. It's important, I think, for those of us, if we understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he rescues and saves and redeems, that we must come to a place where we understand how same-sex attraction has played out in real life today. I know some people who are so adamant about what they believe on both sides of the issue that they stand out on both sides of the issue and they kind of lob bombs into the middle at the people. But it's the people in the middle, I think, who who actually sit in a place of a lot of confusion. But they're also able to have the conversation. Maybe you don't know what to believe about yourself or other people. One of my close friends said this to me a couple days ago when I talked to them about this. They said, most questions I've had about homosexuality haven't been whether it's right or wrong, but about how our understanding should dictate our behavior treatment of the issue today. What that means for real-life interactions with real struggling people. That was great. So we kind of talked about this. So here's some practicalness for you, okay? Again, people centered on the gospel and the good news of Jesus. What do we want to preach? We want to preach Jesus. That's what we want to talk about, Okay. We always want to talk about Jesus. So I would say this. We need to be a people who welcome people who identify as LGBT, questioning, struggling, etc. Because Jesus calls us to remind everyone that our identity doesn't consist in our sexuality. Our identity consists in who Jesus calls us to be. We are never going to change anybody with our arguments. Jesus is the one who comes and changes our hearts. Hopefully, if you follow Jesus for any length of time, you're not the same person you were when you started because Jesus changes you. He's the one that does the work in our lives. So we trust Him to do that. And so we talk about the gospel and the grace that God can actually point out the lie in our lives of whatever it is. I think secondly, we commit to walk alongside others who have brokenness because we remember that Jesus sought us in our own brokenness. I think we also need to acknowledge that there has been discrimination of LGBT communities. There has been. And, and I'm just not talking about someone not wanting to bake a cake. Okay, I am a libertarian at heart. I believe in freedom. America! Like, I, I believe in freedom. It's, I, I mean, if, if I owned a shop and I'd be like, oh, you're wearing a country music t-shirt? Out! We're not serving you. Right? No, no, I wouldn't do that. Right. But, but still, I, what I'm talking about is there has been real perpetrated acts of violence on these people. And we need to be a people who cry out for godly justice. We do. We need to be those people. I think we also need to recognize our own discomfort around people who are not like us. And we need to ask Jesus to help us work through that so we can have real dialogue, so we can be this community. We need to create a redemptive culture that takes risks by being transparent with other people. Whether we agree or disagree, we can still enter into the dialogue. I think talking about the things I have this morning is really hard because there's not just the words I say or the thoughts or the compassion behind them. There's also what others think the words I say mean and how they interpret those words. Let me be clear, very clear. I do not believe anyone who struggles with any issues, which is all of us, is any less a person or any less loved by our great God. No one is better than anyone else, except for Jesus, who lived without sin and gives his righteousness to us. He is the one who restores the relationship between us and a good and holy God. It is why when we trust him, we can fail and fall, and yet still have true and real continuing relationship with Jesus. We are all a people who are broken to some degree. And to think other people are only the ones who are broken forgets our own need for salvation and redemption. And I believe all of us need Jesus no matter where we are or what we've done. Jesus comes to us in our need, and he rescues us exactly where we are. And that is the view we all must have, or we will never be able to enter this conversation in a real way. And I guarantee you, when you enter this conversation with anybody, there are going to be people on both sides who lob bombs at you. It's... It, it, it is not bad to have a conviction about what the scriptures teach and yet still be able to be in deep, meaningful relationships with some of these people. It doesn't, and, I don't, and I don't even mean homosexuality. I mean people who struggle with anything. It's okay. God calls us to be a redemptive people. Sometimes those are hard decisions we make. And sometimes that puts us in a place where we are very vulnerable, but God calls us to be a vulnerable people because he is the one who rescues us. In order to have Jesus save us, we are people who become wide open to who he is and what he has done as he cleanses us and remakes us and makes us new. All of our stuff we realize is spilled out right in front of him. And yet he comes and rescues and saves and puts us back together again because that's who he is. And that's what we preach. We preach Jesus him crucified, Savior of the world. Uh, I think the band's going to come up right there. I, t- <laughs> I did this because I was talking about people praying for you in the back, and I, I don't. And they need to like set up and get ready. Anyway, <sighs> we come to communion every single week because it reminds us of this that that we. Preach and speak of who Jesus is. That's why you break the cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grapes. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me because he is the one who rescues. He is the one who saves. He is the one who does all of these things. So that's where our hope lies. That's where our hope lies. And that's what we speak about. As I said, the redemption guys will be in the back uh, if you need anything, you want to debrief, you want to yell at them. yeah, not me. There's offering boxes inside and on the back we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We do not pass the plate. It's a response to what he's done. Uh, There's food and stuff in the back. Grab something to eat. You'll have some great conversations this week, hopefully with people. (laughs) Or not. Um, But more importantly, we invite you to come to baptisms today and celebrate with the people who are getting baptized. You know. Again, whether you, whether you stay for a little bit or stay you know, for a couple hours today, whatever it is, come and celebrate. Come and celebrate. Because what that shows is that we are a redemptive community and that God is the one who changes us and remakes us and makes us new. Because God is the one who is good. Jesus is the one who rescues and saves. Jesus is the one who does all of these things. And so that is who we lift up first and foremost in all things. And he is the one who brings change into our lives because he is the one who knows how we need to grow. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us how to be a people who trust you and trust your words. Father, that, that we can be a people who step into conversations in lives around us, that we can, we can love and honor your image and those around us, even if we, deep in our hearts, disagree Because in the end, our lives should be centered around who you are. And when our lives are centered around you and lift you up, everything begins to come together again. Redemption, reconciliation of relationships, hope and life and true grace. Father, have us be a people who aren't afraid to to speak the truth but in a way that is centered first in relationship and hope have us be a people who are about your business in the world of reconciliation and restoration Father move us to understand your grace better and better by the people you bring in our lives and Lord I ask for People in this room, if if they don't have anybody in their lives who see things different than they do, that you would bring somebody in their life who does. So that growth can begin to take place. And that you would give us a heart for the world around us that beats in time with your heart. So you would be honored by how your children worship you and speak about you. so that the world would know how good you are because you rescue and save. We ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.